Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you Agatha Christie's Death in the Clouds, where Hercule Poirot must solve a perplexing case of mid-air murder when he discovers that a woman in seat two of the airborne aeroplane he's traveling on is quite unexpectedly and unnaturally deceased. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. We present John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Philip Jackson as Chief Inspector Jap in Agatha Christie's Death in the Clouds. If Le Bon Dieu had intended man to fly, he would have provided him with a stronger stomach. There are two things in life that never fail to fill me with horror. The first is sitting down in a dentist's chair, and the second is waiting for the moment when the aeroplane takes off. Please make sure that your seatbelts are fastened, ladies and gentlemen. We shall be taking off for Croydon very shortly. I had not even had the time to compose myself for the coming ordeal. Shortly after taking my seat, I had been obliged, par politesse, to give it up. Venetia, my dear, I had no idea you would be on this plane. Now, perfectly delightful to see you. Why don't we sit together? Oh, monsieur, I didn't mean that you should move. (laughs) How very kind of you. I moved to a seat further back in the plane. And no sooner had I sat down than the engines began to roar and we moved on the runway. I tried to distract myself by studying the faces of my fellow passengers. What were they thinking? The pretty girl in the corner seat on the other side of the gangway, for instance. So it's all over. One week living on the Riviera with all the really smart people. All because of the Irish sweepstake. And now it's back to giving disgusting old women permanent waves. But why is she trying so hard not to look at the handsome young man sitting opposite her? She is very much aware of him, and he of her. She's pretending not to let on, but she remembers me all right. That evening in the casino when she lost her last stake on number six, and I pretended that my winnings on number five were hers. I did that rather well. And the woman to whom I was obliged to give up my seat, she has scarcely said a word to her friend. Oh, mon dieu, she is going to light a cigarette. Excuse me, madam. No smoking on board. Oh, hell. Sorry, madam. Send my maid to me, will you? She's in the forward compartment. Yes, madam. She is decidedly nervous, that one. And I do not think it is the flying that frightens her. Your dressing case, my lady. Thank you, Madeline. Can you find my nail file? Oh, certainly. Uh, oh, here it is, uh, my lady. Yes. You may go back now. The channel below gleamed in the sunlight. I had taken a mild sedative to steady my stomach, and it was beginning to take effect. I was growing very drowsy. 
The two Frenchmen sitting behind me seemed to be arguing about prehistoric pottery. And was the man beside me really taking out a flute from its case, or was I dreaming? Excuse me, sir. It is Dr. Bryant, isn't it? Yes, I am Dr. Bryant. There's a lady sitting at the back there on the other side of the aisle. I don't like the look of her. I was awake in an instant. The doctor was bending over a stout, middle-aged woman dressed in black who was slumped down in her seat. She's dead. I was rather afraid of her. When did you last see her? Alive, I mean. She was as right as rain when I brought her coffee down. When was that? About three quarters of an hour ago. She's been dead for at least half an hour. There's some kind of puncture mark on her neck. Pardon, monsieur, but uh, there was a wasp flying about the cabin earlier. I I killed it. Is it possible that the poor lady died of a wasp sting? Well, it is possible, I suppose. We should be landing at Croydon any minute. Is there anything I should do, Doctor? No, nothing. Uh, The body must not be moved, of course. Just a little moment. There is something... My dear sir, you'd better return to your seat. But there is something that has been overlooked. Do you see? Here, on the floor. Another wasp, by the look of it. Yes. It is very like a wasp, but it is not a wasp. Mm, It's a kind of miniature dart with orange and black feathers. Good Lord! I never expected to see anything like this with my own eyes. You recognize it, monsieur? This is a thorn that is shot from a blowpipe by certain native tribes. Can't remember now whether from South America or Borneo. And I strongly suspect that the tip... No, don't touch it. You mean this is the famous arrow poison of the South American Indians? Can it be possible? How did you recognize it? I write detective stories. My name is Daniel Clancy, and I've made myself quite an expert in unusual ways of killing people. But I never thought I'd see anything like this in real life. But gentlemen, you must return to your seats. The plane is about to land. At Croydon... We were informed that we would have to remain in the aeroplane until the arrival of the proper authorities. Now, this is absolutely outrageous. Shutting us in here with a dead body? It was nearly half an hour before we were taken off and ushered into the presence of the proper authorities in the shape of my old friend, Chief Inspector Shap. I hope not to keep you any longer than is necessary, ladies and gentlemen, but as I'm sure you will appreciate, you will have to remain here until the facts of the matter have been established. Nonsense. I am Lady Horbury. You cannot detain me in this manner. I am sincerely sorry, Lady Horbury, but you see, this is a very serious matter. It looks like a case of murder. Murder? And now, Dr... Bryant. Bryant. If you would care to come this way, Dr. Bryant. Uh, May I assist at your interview? Monsieur Poirot. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't recognise you all muffled up like that. Do come along, by all means. And, uh, and why should that funny little man be allowed out while the rest of us have to stay cooped up in here? He's probably something to do with the French police. Whoever he is, he is certainly most observant. But at least they can't stop me having a cigarette in here. <laughs> Excuse me, but didn't we meet at the casino at Le Pinay? Yes, I think we did. Uh, didn't you point out that I'd forgotten to pick up my winnings? I was very grateful that you did. <laughs> Do you think that woman really was murdered? Mm, they seem to think so. It's rather thrilling in a way. Rather nasty at the same time. 
You've got a knack of turning up in the most unexpected places, Monsieur Poirot. And is not Croydon Aerodrome a little out of your beat, my friend? I'm after rather a big bug in the smuggling line. Better luck my being on the spot like this. It's the most amazing business I've come across in years. Can you give me any idea of the cause of death, Doctor? I should not really like to say anything definite at this stage. Our surgeon will be examining the body, of course, so I don't think we need keep you. I'm afraid you'll have to go through the same formalities as the other passengers. I should be only too happy. I prefer you to make sure that I haven't got a blowpipe concealed on my person. My sergeant will take care of that. This dart affair, have you any idea what would be likely to be on the tip of it? As far as I know, curare is the usual poison employed by native tribes. Would that do the trick? Uh, in a remarkably short time. But not very easy to obtain, I imagine. Not at all easy for a layman. Then you'd better make sure to search him extra carefully, Sergeant. Thank you, Doctor. Poor business, this. A bit too sensational to be true. I mean, blowpipes and poison darts in an aeroplane. Well, it's an insult to one's intelligence. That, my friend, is a very profound remark. I've got a couple of men searching the plane, but before we get down to questioning everybody, I'd like to get some idea of who was sitting where. The plane was divided into two passenger compartments, I understand, with the steward's pantry and the toilets in between them. That is so. We need not concern ourselves with the people in the forward compartment. And the dead woman was sitting at the rear of the plane across the aisle from you. And in front of her was Mr Ryder, and in front of him was Mr Clancy. A chap who had the brainwave about the blowpipe? Yes. And in front of him was Mr Gale, sitting opposite Miss Gray. Mm, who was facing the rear of the plane. Mm -hmm. So who was on your side of the gangway? The two Duponts were sitting behind me at the rear. And Dr. Bryant was beside you. Who was in front? The Countess of Horbury, with the Honourable Venetia Carr sitting opposite her. That seems clear enough. Passengers will probably be hopping mad by now, but even so, I think we'll see the two stewards first. But the stewards revealed remarkably little, other than that the dead woman, Marie Morisseau, was a regular passenger. Business of some kind, I suppose. You don't happen to know what her business was. Uh, no idea, I'm afraid. Did she speak to anyone on the plane or show any sign of recognition? Uh, not that I saw, sir. Did she leave a seat at any time? No, sir. Uh, permit me one little question. Did you notice a wasp flying about the plane? Uh, there was no wasp that I know of. Nor had Lady Hobbery, who had noticeably calmed down by the time she was called, seen the wasp. And did you have any previous acquaintance with the dead woman, Mary Morisot? No, she was quite unknown to me. And you didn't notice anything unusual during the flight? Nothing, but I was facing towards the front of the aeroplane. And did you leave your seat during the journey? No. Did anyone else? I think two of the men passengers went to the cloakroom, but I can't be certain. And you didn't see anyone handling anything that looked like a blowpipe? A blowpipe? Was that how she was killed? <laughs> no, I certainly didn't. We've got to find that blowpipe, Poirot, if there really is such a thing. I suppose that writer chap hasn't gone off his onion and decided to do one of his crimes in the flesh instead of on paper. Why do you not ask him, my friend? Have you ever owned a blowpipe yourself, Mr Clancy? Yes, I have, as a matter of fact. I was writing a book, you see. It was all a question of the position of fingerprints on the blowpipe. I had to know exactly, you see... So I bought one from somewhere in the Charing Cross Road. Mm, do you still have it? Well, yes, I, I think so. Where is it now? 
Well, I, I suppose it must be somewhere around. What exactly do you mean by somewhere around? Uh, I mean, uh, I don't quite know where it is. Is it with you now, for instance? No. No, I haven't laid eyes on it for months. Did you leave your seat at all on the plane? No, certainly. At least, yes, I did. And where did you go? I went to get a Continental Bradshaw out of my raincoat pocket. And where was that? At the back of the plane. So you passed just by the dead woman's seat? I suppose I must have done. Tell me, my friend, did you notice a wasp? A wasp? I certainly did. It tried to sting me. Then it went over to where those Frenchmen were sitting. One of them killed it, I think. Looks pretty fishy to me. He actually owns a blowpipe, and he went all to pieces when I asked where it was. Perhaps it was your threatening manner, my friend. I never threatened Poirot. You should know that. There's nothing for anyone to be afraid of if they're telling the truth. Anyway, if it isn't him, it'll be those two Frenchmen. A very sinister-looking pair. And they've got a battered old suitcase plastered with foreign labels of all sorts. I bet they've been to Borneo in South America. You mark my words, they're up to something. Oh, my friend, they are hardly the cutthroats. They are two very distinguished archaeologists. You're pulling my leg. Not at all. They are Armand Dupont and his son Jean. And they have come to England to lecture to the Royal Archaeological Society. Well, if you say so, Poirot, but you must admit they don't look much. The world's famous men seldom do. I myself have before now been taken for a hairdresser. You don't say. Well, let's have the rest of them in. But none of them seem to have noticed anything of any importance. Lady Horbury's acquaintance, the Honourable Venetia Carr, had spent all her time staring out of the window... Mr. Ryder, who was only concerned about making his business meeting, was engrossed in his papers. Norman Gale, who turned out to be, oh, ma foi, a dentist, had eyes only for the beautiful Miss Gray. You were facing the rear of the plane. Did you happen to notice Madame Morisot at all? Oh, yes. I noticed her all right. And why was that, Miss Gray? Well, she was most frightfully ugly. And her hair was a terrible mess. After they had all been questioned... Jacques Sargent came in, carrying something carefully wrapped up in a handkerchief. It was a blowpipe, and he had discovered it, pushed out of sight behind seat number nine, the seat which had been occupied by... me. <laughs> so this is your work, old bird. Oh, mon ami, when I commit a murder, it will not be with the arrow poison of the South American Indians. It is a bit low, I admit. A crude detective story dodge, but it seems to have worked. So what are we looking for? A man who has travelled to South America or Borneo, or wherever they carry on like that. Oh, if you look closely, my friend, you will notice a microscopic piece of paper adhering to the pipe. It looks very like the remains of a torn-off price ticket. I fancy that our murderer found the blowpipe not in the upper reaches of the Amazon, but in some Paris curio shop. That will probably make the search easier. And there is one little favour I beg of you, mon ami. What's that, Poirot? I would like all the passengers' luggage and the contents of their bags and pockets to be checked and listed. They'll kick up a terrible fuss. Oh, I am sure you are more than capable of handling that, mon ami. Very well, Poirot. Anything for the great detective. The inquest on Madame Marisot took place four days later. 
It told me very little that I did not know, except for the evidence of one witness, Monsieur Fournier of the Surete. Although the name on the passport of the deceased was Marie-Angélique Morisseau, she was better known by the name of Madame Giselle, one of the most notable money lenders in Paris, with a number of clients in England, particularly among the upper and professional classes. She was a woman of very original character and reputed to be extremely wealthy. The implications of this seemed to make very little impression on the reporters present in court who were far more excited by the blowpipe and the poison dart. According to the chief government analysts, it had been dipped in the venom of Dysphilidus typus, a South African snake better known as the boomslang. There was a small stir of interest when Lady Horbury was called, but as it turned out, the reporters were more interested in her hat than her evidence. The jury were, however, greatly impressed by the fact that the blowpipe had been found behind my seat. And at the end of the inquest, the foreman returned a verdict which, I am thankful to say, the coroner refused to accept. I wonder what was in that paper that the coroner wouldn't have at any price. I can't tell you if you already oh. wish to know. Oh, Monsieur Poirot, I didn't see you standing there. Well, do tell us. It was a verdict of willful murder, mademoiselle, against myself. <laughs> Definitely, I must set to work to clear my character. Au revoir. <laughs> what an extraordinarily odd little beggar. I don't see how he could do much detecting. Any criminal could spot him a mile off. Oh, you've got very old-fashioned ideas about detectives. They don't crawl about with magnifying glasses wearing false beards nowadays. They just sit down and think the case out psychologically. Rather less strenuous. Mm, physically, perhaps. But, of course, you need a clear, cool brain. You mean a hot, muddled one wouldn't do? <laughs> Look, would you mind... I mean, it would be frightfully nice... How about having a cup of tea with me? Oh, thank you very much. I think that would be an excellent idea. It's an odd show, this murder business. I don't quite know what to make of it all. I'm certainly worried about it from the work point of view. I'm an assistant in a hairdresser's, and they mayn't like to employ a girl who's been mixed up in a murder case. Anyone's only got to look at you to know you couldn't murder anybody. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. There's one of my regular ladies. She's got a voice like a corncrake, and she grumbles about everything. I really think sometimes that killing her off would be a good deed all round, so long as I could be sure I'd get away with it. <laughs> well, you didn't do this particular murder anyway. I can swear to that. Mm, and I can swear that you didn't. Of course, I don't know what my patients would make of it all. Your patients? I'm a dentist. And a dentist who might be a homicidal maniac is not a very alluring prospect. <laughs> I hope you don't mind me being a dentist. Why should I mind? Well, there's always something rather comic about a dentist. Not a very romantic profession. Well, it's decidedly a cut above being a hairdresser's assistant. <laughs> <laughs> I feel we're going to be friends, don't you? Oh, yes. Great friends, I'm sure of it. Now, who do you really think murdered that Giselle woman? 
Well, old boy, that was a pretty narrow escape. You might have been locked up in a police cell. Hmm. I fear that such an occurrence might have damaged me professionally. Well, it wouldn't be the first time a detective turned out to be a murderer. Ah, Monsieur Fournier. May I present my old friend, Monsieur Poirot? I witnessed your performance in court this morning. But I think I had the pleasure of meeting you some years ago. Now, may I suggest that you both come and dine with me in my rooms? Oh, that is, if you and my old friend Jacques do not object to my collaboration. That's all right, old cock. After all, you were in on the ground floor, so to speak, even if it was up in the clouds. Mm. Oh, a delicious meal, Monsieur Powell. You have disproved the common assumption that it is impossible to eat well in England. Mm, a bit <laughs> Frenchified for my taste, but quite respectable in its way. A meal should always lie lightly on the stomach. It should not be so heavy as to paralyse thought. <laughs> and we're certainly going to need our thinking caps this evening. Tell us what you can about this Giselle woman, Monsieur Fournier. Uh, to tell the truth, I know very little, particularly as far as her private life is concerned. She was a woman of business, a woman who enjoyed power, and she would never allow sentiment to affect her commercial instinct. Would you say she was an honest woman? According to her own lights. What exactly do you mean by that? The law could have called her to account if only evidence had been forthcoming. Oh, come on, don't beat about the bush. What was she up to? Chantage. Blackmail. Of a very special kind. It was Madame Giselle's custom to lend money on what you call in this country note of hand alone. She must have had a very special kind of clientele. Her customers lay exclusively among the upper and professional classes, classes particularly vulnerable to the force of public opinion. And easy victims of blackmail. She had her own very efficient intelligence service. It was her custom, before lending any large sum of money, to collect as many facts as possible about the client in question. At the same time, she was scrupulously honest. She never made use of secret information to obtain money that was not already owed to her. But there must have been cases when she had to write off a debt. What happened then? The information in her possession would be made public. Well, all this opens up a very pretty line in motives for murder. And then there's the question of who's going to come into her money. Mm. Can you help us there at all, Mr. Fournier? There was a daughter. She did not live with her mother. Indeed, I believe that Madame Morisseau had not seen her since she was a tiny child. But she made a will many years ago, leaving everything, apart from a small legacy to her maid, to her daughter, Anne. Uh, as far as I know, she's not made another. Her fortune is large? Oh, I'd guess eight or nine million francs. Mm. Just as well the young lady wasn't on that plane, or she'd have been our top suspect. How old would she be, this Anne Morisot? About oh, 24 or 5, I should imagine. Oh, I don't very well see how she could be connected with the crime. But we'll have to get down to this blackmail business. <laughs> Everyone on the plane categorically denies knowing Madame Giselle. But one of them's obviously lying, and we've got to find out which. An examination of her papers might give us an idea. I fear not. Immediately after the news of her death came through from Scotland Yard, I went straight to her house. All the papers in her safe had been burned. Who burned them? Do you know? She had a confidential maid, Elise, who had instructions to burn the contents of the safe in the event of anything happening to her mistress. Mm. She evidently had her own strict code of morality. Exactly. She was ruthless, but she kept faith with those who kept faith with her. Right. Well, let's get down to it, shall we? There were 11 passengers in that part of the plane, including the dead woman, and there were two stewards. It doesn't seem very likely that either of them would have been borrowing money on a grand scale, but we can't exactly rule them out. 
They were up and down the gangway, and one of them could easily have taken up a position from which they could have used that blowpipe. Mind you, of all the damn fool ways to commit a murder. And yet it succeeded, did it not? We three sit here talking about it, but we have no knowledge of who committed the crime. Oh, that is success. Hmm. Right, let's take a look at the passengers, starting up the end of the steward's pantry and the toilets. Seat number 16, that's the hairdressing girl, Jane Grey. Frankly, I don't see her taking out a loan from the old girl, and I don't think a hairdresser's assistant has the slightest chance of laying her hands on snake venom. It's not as though they use it in hair dye. An error on the murderer's part, perhaps? Only about two people in a hundred would be likely to have any knowledge of it. Mm. Now then, number 12, sitting opposite her, Norman Gale. Very much the same applies to him, small fry. Now, I suppose he might have a better chance of getting hold of the snake venom. Which is not an injection usually favoured by dentists. And he did leave his seat to go to the toilet. But that's in the opposite direction from Madame Giselle. To kill her with a blowpipe, he'd have needed the kind of thing that would make a right-angle turn. So he's pretty well out of it. I agree. So, we'll cross the gangway to seat 17, the Honourable Venetia Carr. I suppose she could have borrowed a bit from Madame Giselle, and she could just about have taken a sporting shot diagonally across the cabin. Surely Lady Aubrey is a far more likely suspect. Mm. I happen to know she had been losing very heavily at the baccarat table in Le Pinet. You're certainly the type of person to be mixed up with Madame Giselle. But how could she have done it? She didn't move during the flight. She'd have had to kneel up on her seat and lean over the top of it with all the other passengers looking on. Have you considered... Dr. Bryant? Big boy in Harley Street. Not very likely to go to a French moneylender. I bet he could pick up a test tube of snake venom as easy as winking. I assure you, my friend, I have not forgotten that point. Mind you, Ryder in seat number four was directly in front of the woman. He went to the toilet. He could have taken a pot shot at her on his way back. The only thing is, the archaeologists would have been bound to notice. Which leaves us with them. Their position in the cabin is pretty good from my point of view. And they've knocked about the world. They could easily have got hold of snake poison. It is possible, yes. But you don't believe it's likely? To be honest, I do not. So, let's take a look at where we stand. Jane Grey, Norman Gale, Venetia Carr. No obvious motive, and possibility practically nil. Mm. Lady Horbury, motive strong, possibility nil. Dr Bryant could have a motive, and possibility good. Clancy, motive doubtful... Possibility good. Ryder, motive uncertain. Possibility fair. The Duponts, poor as regards motive, good as to means of obtaining poison. A very precise summary, Chief Inspector. Of course, there's a fair bit of checking up to do. Will you investigate the Duponts when you get back to Paris, Mr. Fournier? Of course. I shall return tomorrow morning. There may be something to be got out of Madame Giselle's maid, now that we know a little more about the case. And what about you, Monsieur Poirot? Are you going to take a hand? Oh, yes. I should like to accompany Monsieur Fournier, if I may. Enchanté. You've been very quiet over all this. Any ideas? Hmm. Have you the list of the belongings of the passengers, my friend? It will be on my desk, first thing in the morning. Perhaps you would like to take a look at it before you accompany Monsieur Fournier back to Paris. I would be delighted, my dear Jap. Most of it's pretty routine stuff, as you can see. James Ryder, business cards, pigskin, note case. And a letter informing him that a loan had been successfully negotiated, otherwise we'd be in Quiz Street. Mm. Silver cigarette case, match folder, letter signed Mordy, make an appointment at the Trocadero. Dr Bryant, cigarette case, lighter, 
and he was carrying a flute in a case. Huh? Strange. I thought that was a dream. Norman Gale had a briar pipe and an empty matchbox, white linen coat, dental mirrors, dental rolls of cotton wool. And the DuPonts were carrying several hollow tubes which they said were Kurdish pipe stems. They could have done the job just as well as a blowpipe. Daniel Clancy, newspaper cutting about arsenic poisoning, a golf ball, Continental Bradshaw, and the manuscript of Murder on Vesuvius. Miss Carr, two cigarette holders, receipted hotel bill, Paris, photograph of two spaniels. Miss Gray, tube of aspirin, French phrase book, casino counter for five francs. Lady Horbury, diamond ring, and like her friend Miss Carr, two cigarette holders. Complete makeup outfit in her dressing case and a small bottle labelled boracic powder. Boracic powder, my eye. The white stuff in that bottle was cocaine. Nothing to do with our case, perhaps. But I've an idea that her ladyship wouldn't stick at much to get what she wanted. Have you seen this morning's sketch? Hmm. Sun worshippers. The Countess of Forbury and Raymond Baraclough hmm. at Le Pinay. Ah, he plays small passing films, does he not? Mm, there isn't much material in that bathing dress of hers, is there? I will take the newspaper with me, if I may. Want to have a close look, eh? Oh. <laughs> well, any of this stuff about the passengers been of any use to you? On the face of it, your list seems to point plainly to one person as the murderer. Are you pulling my leg? Oh, no, no, no. Kelly Day. But at the moment I cannot see why... Or even how? Ah, now I must be on my way to Croydon. Well, have a good flight. And keep your eyes open for poison darts. <laughs> and so, once again, I subjected mon pauvre estomac to the hazards of the air. But the flight was smooth, and I had the antics of Monsieur Fournier to distract me. He had with him a small tube of bamboo, which, at intervals during the flight, he would put to his lips, always aiming in a different direction. And whenever he did so, every eye in the cabin was fixed on him. On our arrival in France, we drove directly to the house of Madame Giselle in the Rue Juliette, where her maid, Elise Grandier, was waiting for us. Please, come in, monsieur. I decided that my best course was to sit quietly in a corner and say nothing. Poisoned? Oh, there is no question of that. No, mademoiselle, oh. no question. Whoever would have dreamt of such a thing? Well, that is perhaps where you can help me. You must know who were her enemies. Why should madame have enemies? Oh, come, mademoiselle. The profession of money lender must always involve a little unpleasantness. It is true that sometimes her clients were not reasonable. They made scenes? They threatened her? Oh, no, monsieur, it was not they who threatened. They were sorry for themselves, protesting they could not pay, but they usually paid in the end. You had no pity for them? Why should I? They lived beyond their means and had to borrow. Why should they expect to keep the money as a gift? Madame was always fair and just. She lent and she expected repayment. Were you aware of the means Madame used to make them pay? I knew nothing, monsieur. Nothing at all. Mm. You knew enough to burn her papers. She had left me instructions that if she met with an accident or died away from home, I was to destroy them immediately. Very well. Now, 
Listen carefully. It is possible that Madame was murdered by a person about whom she held damaging information, information that was in those papers. Now, it would be quite understandable if you glanced through those papers before committing them to the flat. No, Monsieur, I looked at nothing. The papers were in a sealed envelope. I burned it without undoing the seal. Ah, it is a pity. You acted honorably, but it is a pity. Before she left for England, did Madame say anything to you that might be of any help to us? No, Monsieur. She had been away at Lupine. She was in good spirits and uh, business was going well. She directed me to telephone Universal Airlines to book a flight for England the following day. The early morning one was booked up, but I obtained a seat on the 12 o'clock service. Did any clients come to see Madame on that last evening? I believe there was one client. Uh, Georges, the uh, concierge would know. Hmm. Mademoiselle, we will take our leave. Hmm. What is it, Monsieur Powell? Are you looking for something? Yes, for uh, something I do not see. Photographs of Madame Giselle's family. She had no family, monsieur. But she had a daughter. Is there no photograph of her? Oh, monsieur, it is true she had a daughter, but that was long ago. It is my belief that Madame had not seen her since she was a tiny baby. She may not even have been married to the child's father. And Madame Giselle left her money to this daughter. Who else was there to leave it to? She had no friends. She was always alone. Money was her only passion. She left you a legacy. You know that. I have been informed so. Madame was always very generous. Well, Mademoiselle, that will be all for the present. Are you quite sure that there is nothing, nothing at all, that you have omitted to mention? What, uh, what could that be? Uh, well, come then, Monsieur Powell. We must take our leave. Uh, if you permit, I will follow in a little moment. Of course. I have a word with the concierge. Au revoir, mademoiselle. <clears throat> Is there something you wish to ask me, monsieur? Have you any idea, only an idea, who might have murdered your mistress? No idea at all. I have already said so to the police. Ah, you might say one thing to them and another to me. Why should I do that? Because it is one thing to give information to the police and another to a private individual. That is true. Shall I tell you something, mademoiselle? It is part of my business to believe nothing I am told, nothing that is not proved. I do not suspect this person or that person. I suspect everybody. Are you saying that you suspect me? No, Elise. Whoever murdered Madame Giselle was a passenger on that aeroplane, but you might have been an accomplice. You might have passed on to someone the details of your mistress's journey. I did not. I swear I did not. I believe you. But nevertheless, there is something you conceal. In every case of a criminal nature, everyone keeps something back. That is so with you. When my friend, Monsieur Fournier, asked you if there was nothing you had omitted to mention, you were troubled and evasive. What is it that you are holding back? Oh, it is nothing of importance. Let me be the judge of that. Monsieur, I am in a difficulty. I do not know what Madame would have wanted me to do. Uh -huh. There is a saying that two heads are better than one. Will you not confide in me? 
very well, monsieur. It is, it is this. This little book was madame's. It went with her everywhere. When she was about to depart for England, she could not find it. After she was gone, I came across it behind the head of her bed. I did not know what to do with it, so I kept it in my room. You see my difficulty, monsieur. I believe that you acted with the best intentions. But let me see if there is anything in this book that will aid us. I do not think that you will find anything of use. It is a private memorandum, but there are numbers only, no names. CX-256, Colonel's Wife Station, Syria, Regimental Funds. GF-342, French Deputy, Stavisky Connection. Le Pinay, Monday, Casino, 10.30, Savoy Hotel, 5 o'clock. It means nothing, monsieur. Or so it seems to me. It may be very valuable. I will see that you will not be blamed for not handing it over to the police. Monsieur is very kind. One last question, mademoiselle. When you reserved a seat on the plane for madame, did you ring up Le Bourget or the office of the company? I rang the office of Universal Airlines in the Boulevard des Capucines. Thank you, mademoiselle. That is where you score, my friend. The private individual gets far more out of witnesses than we ever do through official questions. But did the concierge tell you nothing? It was a lady who visited Madame Giselle on the night before she came to England. He did not identify her from any of the photographs, or at least he said he did not, but when I showed him the daily sketch, he gave a little start of recognition. Ah, and in the notebook there is a significant entry. CL-52, English peeress, husband... Uh, she is, I understand, an addicted gambler. Nothing could be more likely than she should borrow from Madame. And the husband? Uh, either the husband was expected to pay up for his wife's debts, or she had some hold over Lady Aubrey, a secret which she threatened to divulge to the husband. Something to do with the newspaper photograph, perhaps? Perhaps. There are more entries in the book which may refer to other passengers... RT-367, Doctor, Harley Street. Doctor Bryan, perhaps? Mm, there's not much to go on. Anyone else? GF-45, attempted murder. Well, that could be anyone. A murderer with a blowpipe, perhaps? Ah, the blowpipe. I have had a report from the Sûreté. A Greek antique dealer has reported the sale of a blowpipe. The price tickets he uses are very similar to the one on the murder weapon, but there is one vital difference. What is that? The silk on the darts was red, not black and yellow. And who was the purchaser of this blowpipe? Uh, an American, or so he says. Chewing gum, wearing tortoiseshell rimmed glasses, did not speak French. Probably a wild goose chase. Probably... But now I am going to lead you on another white ghost chase. Where to? To the Boulevard des Capucines, the offices of Universal Airlines. And if you please, let me do the talking. Uh, yes, monsieur, that is correct. Madame's maid asked for the 845 service, but it was fully booked. So we gave her a seat on the 12 o'clock flight. How very curious. A friend of mine who travelled on the 845 service on that day said that the plane was half empty. <laughs> Possibly your friend has mistaken the day. No, 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 there was no mistake. It was the day of the murder. He said if he had missed that plane, he would have travelled on the flight on which that woman was killed. 
<laughs> well, of course, sometimes when people arrive at the last minute... No, no, that was not the case. Do you not think it would be better if you were to tell me the truth? <laughs> I don't understand you, monsieur. You understand me very well. You should also understand that in a case of murder, it is a very serious offense to withhold important information. Mm. How much were you paid and who paid you? I meant no harm. I had no idea. How much? 5,000 francs. Mm. Continue. A man. I'd never seen him before. Came in and said he was going to England the following day. He wanted to negotiate a loan from Madame Giselle, but he wanted to appear to meet her by chance. He knew that she would be traveling the following day, but he could not manage the earlier flight. All I had to do was to tell her that the early service was full and to give her seat number two on the 12 o'clock flight. I saw nothing wrong in that. And they do business in unconventional ways. Americans? Yes, monsieur. Describe this man. He had uh, gray hair, horn-rimmed glasses, uh, and uh, a little beard. And did he book a seat for himself? Yes, seat number one, next to madame. And what was his name? Silas Hopper. His seat was never occupied. There was no one of that name on the flight. You have withheld important information from the police. This is a very serious offense. Why was it so important that Madame Giselle should travel on that flight? There is some factor here that I do not understand. But who is this mysterious American? Oh, no, there is no American. It is the same as the man who bought the blowpipe, the chewing gum, the nasal accent, the spectacles, and now the false beard. It is easy enough. It would certainly seem to rule out Lady Aubrey. <laughs> Perhaps, but... The man who booked the ticket does not necessarily have to be the murderer, my friend. Uh, yes, it would be easy enough for her to persuade someone to help her. She is a beautiful woman. Murder has a strange way of bringing people together. To have been close to a mysterious death, to share the ordeal of a coroner's court, establishes a bond of friendship between perfect strangers. Jane Grey, lunching alone at Alliance Corner House, was suddenly aware of a face at the next table that was vaguely familiar to her. Excuse me, mademoiselle, but do you not recognize me? We have not been introduced, it is true, unless you call murder a form of introduction. Oh, of course, it, you were on the plane. Jean Dupont. <laughs> and I'm Jane Grey. So you're still in England, then? You permit that I join you? Mm, yes, of course, please. My, uh, my father has been in Edinburgh to give a lecture. We are returning to France tomorrow. Oh, I see. The police have not yet made an arrest? Oh, I haven't read anything in the papers. Perhaps they've given it up. Oh, no. They never give it up. They work silently, in the dark. Oh, don't. Give me the creeps. Yes. It is not a nice feeling to have been so close when a murder was committed. Mm. Who do you think did it? It was not I. She was far too ugly. You mean you would rather kill a good-looking woman than an ugly one? Is it really so strange? If a woman is good-looking, you are fond of her. She treats you badly, she is unfaithful, she makes you mad with jealousy. So you say to yourself, I will kill her. It will bring me satisfaction. And does it? <laughs> that, mademoiselle, I do not know, because I have not yet tried. 
but an ugly old woman like Madame Giselle. Who would want to kill her? I suppose that's one way of looking at it. But perhaps she might have been pretty once. Yes. It is the tragedy of life that women grow old. You seem to think a lot about women and their looks. Naturally. It only seems strange to you because you are English. You know, when I was sitting in the... How do you call it? Uh, the, the coroner's court? Yes. Mm. I looked at you and I thought... How nice it would be if I could see that girl again one day. <laughs> and here I am sitting next to her. The gods arrange things very well sometimes. <laughs> You're a, an archaeologist, aren't you? Yes, mademoiselle. Oh, you must have been to so many countries and seen so much. I shall never go anywhere or see anything. You would like that? <laughs> to go abroad, to see the wild parts of the earth? <laughs> You would not be able to get your hair waved, remember? <laughs> it waves by itself. Mademoiselle, as I said, I have to return to France tomorrow. It would give me great pleasure to spend a little more time in your company. I wonder if you would care to dine with me tonight? Oh, I'm sorry. I've already arranged something else. Uh, I too am sorry. You will come again to France? I don't expect so. I doubt whether I shall win the sweepstake again. The sweepstake? Oh, a, a kind of lottery. Ah, you are a gambler. Then, I wish you good luck. And I hope that your luck will arrange for our paths to cross again someday soon. I've hardly spoken a word all evening. Is something the matter? No, nothing in particular. Things going badly? Not frightfully well. It's a bad time of year. Don't be idiotic. One time of year is as good as any other for a dentist. Are people cancelling their appointments because... Because they don't want to sit in a dentist's chair and be practised on by somebody who might be a murderer? Mm. Half of them are scared stiff of going to the dentist at the best of times, and now... Oh, it's so unfair. It makes me feel so guilty. Well, why should you feel guilty? Because I've become quite a drawer at Antoine's. Everybody wants me to do their hair so they can hear about the murder at first hand. I've even talked Antoine into raising my wages. Whereas, as far as I'm concerned, if things go on like this, I shall have to pack it all in and emigrate to Canada or somewhere. I'm sure it won't really come to that. I feel so much the mercy of things. If I were a young man in a book, I'd get down to finding out which of the passengers on the plane really did the murder. <laughs> well... Now's your chance. One of them sitting over there in the corner by himself. Don't, don't turn around. I don't want him to notice us. Who is it? It's Mr. Clancy, the man who writes detective stories. Why don't we follow him when he leaves? You never know. He might find out something. How far has he got with his dinner? Hmm. He's about level with us. And we'd better get a move on so we can leave immediately after he does. We mustn't draw attention to ourselves. devil's he up to? He keeps stopping and starting and changing direction. Is he trying to throw us off the scent, do you think? Oh, I don't believe he's actually noticed us at all. Oh, he's stopped again. Well, why is he looking at the butcher's shop? He seems to be chattering away to himself. What's the matter with him? And off he goes again. He's certainly getting a move on. We're going to have a job keeping up with him without being noticed.
He stopped. He seems to be looking for something. It's keys. He's going in. 47 Cardigan Street. That's the address he gave for himself at the inquest. Yes. A fine <laughs> evening for the chase, is it not? <laughs> Monsieur Poirot, are you still trying to clear your character? Ah, you remember our little conversation? And are you playing at detectives? <laughs> is it the ingenious Mr. Clancy that you suspect? Oh, so do you, or you wouldn't be here. Ah, no, 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 mademoiselle. No, there are more important things than finding the murderer. The vital point is to clear the innocent. But... Why should we not combine together? I am about to call on Mr. Clancy. Now, I would suggest that you, mademoiselle, accompany me in the guise of a secretary. Hmm? Oh, uh, Here, take this notebook and pencil for the shorthand. But I can't write shorthand. But you can make signs on the paper, can you not? As for you, Mr. Gale, I suggest that you meet us upstairs at Monseigneur's in an hour's time. Very well. Come then, mademoiselle. Murder and to be part of it oneself, it's simply amazing. All very shocking, of course, but undoubtedly rather thrilling. I'm writing the whole thing just as it happened, only as fiction, of course, with pen portraits of all the passengers. The airmail mystery, it ought to sell like wildfire. Won't you be had up for libel or something? Oh, no, dear lady. My story is far too ingenious for that. And it is because of your ingenuity, Monsieur Clancy, that I have come to see you. It would be of great interest to me to know who, in your opinion, committed the crime. Well, of course, I'm very flattered. But a real murder is very different from my little mysteries. You haven't any control over the facts. No, but if you had to make a sporting guess... Who would you choose? Well, I suppose one of the two Frenchmen. Ah, why is that? Well, she was French. Seems more likely somehow. And they were sitting on the opposite side, not far away from her. But really, oh, I don't know. It depends so much on motive. Yes. I gather there's a daughter who comes into Madame Giselle's money. And there might be people on board who owed her money and couldn't afford to pay her back. True. And there are other possibilities. Let us suppose that Madame Giselle knew of something... attempted murder, shall we say, on the part of one of these people. Attempted murder? What a very curious suggestion. In a case like this one, one must think of everything. That blowpipe that you bought. Oh, I wish I'd never mentioned that blasted thing. I think you mentioned you bought it in the Charing Cross Road. Do you remember by any chance the name of the shop? Well, it might have been Mitchell and Smith. Oh, and then again, it might have been Houghton and Man. Uh, yeah, uh, perhaps, Miss Gray, you would be so obliging as to take down those two names. Yes, Monsieur Poirot. And now, Mr. Clancy, we must take our departure. Oh, you came at a fortunate moment. For days, I've been racking my brains for the name of the criminal in my story. Oh. And just now, I saw it written up above a butcher's shop. Pargeta. Uh -huh. Oh, but you must allow me to give you a copy of the case of the Scarlet Petal. <sighs> it deals in some detail with arrow poisons. Here you are. Ah, oh, you are too amiable, monsieur. Oh, not at all. I notice, Miss Gray, uh, that you don't use the Pitman system of shorthand. No, 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 no. Miss Gray uses a much more efficient system, recently devised in Czechoslovakia. 
You don't say. I do. Mm. Very clever, those checks. Yeah. Pilsen beer, glass, gloves, and now a new shorthand system. <laughs> I'm sorry I couldn't be more helpful. I hope you find your blowpipe. So, did you get anything out of Mr Clancy? Hmm. He's not so scatterbrained as one might imagine. He saw through me, all right. Did you really want those addresses? Oh, I think they might be useful, yes. And are you going to go through this process with all the passengers on the plane? Oh, yes, yes. It is part of my order and method. But I could perhaps solve the problem more quickly if I had help. Well, what kind of help? I'll help from you, Mr Gale, and later perhaps from you too, Miss Gray. What can I do? Hmm. You will not like it. <laughs> Let me be the judge of that. What is it? Frankly, what I need is a blackmailer. A blackmailer? What for? Oh, to blackmail, what else? Who am I to blackmail? You will write... No, no, I will write a note and you will copy it to the Countess of Hobury. The lady who was sitting across the gangway from us? The same. In this note you will ask for an interview. You will refer to certain business dealings of Madame Giselle having passed into your hands. And then? You will be accorded an interview. You will say certain things in which I will instruct you, and you will ask for £10,000. <laughs> You're mad! No, not at all. I am eccentric, possibly, but mad, no. What if she sends for the police? She will not send for the police. You can't know that. Oh, mon cher, practically speaking, I know everything. I don't like the idea of blackmailing a woman. Ah, ha, you have the chivalrous spirit. But I assure you that Lady Hopiuri is not worth the fine feelings. She is, to use your idiom, a nasty piece of goods. All the same. All you have to do is to produce a certain effect. After that, the ground is prepared and I can step in. All right, I'll do it. But I don't like it. Good. Now, take this down. This is what you will write. To the Countess of Hobury. Dear Madam, Remadame Giselle, deceased. I am the holder of certain documents formerly in her possession. If you or Mr. Raymond Barraclough are interested in the matter, I should be happy to call on you. Or perhaps you would prefer me to deal directly with your husband. Yours truly, John Robinson. Well, will I do? Oh, nom de Dieu, what kind of comedy do you think you are playing? I thought you said it would be as well if I wore a slight disguise. A slight disguise? What do you think you are? A Guy fox to go on top of the bonfire? A false beard that cries out to heaven and those ridiculous eyebrows? My friend, this is certainly not your métier. I acted in amateur theatricals a great deal at one time. No, mon ami, you are to be a blackmailer, not a comedian. I won't her ladyship to fear you, not die of laughing the moment she sees you. Now, let me take a hand. This is a serious business. And let me be certain that you know your lines. There's no need to go into details, Lady Horbury. We all know how pleasant a few days on the Riviera can be, but husbands seldom agree. I don't need to tell you what the evidence consists of. Giselle always came up with the goods. The question is, who needs it most? 
You or Lord Horbury? How did you get hold of this so-called evidence? <laughs> now, really, Lady Horbury, that's rather beside the point. Show it to me. <laughs> no, I'm not so green as that. If we agree to do business, of course, that's another matter. I'll show you the stuff before you hand the money over. How much do you want? Ten thousand. <gasps> Pounds, not dollars. I could never lay my hands on anything like that amount. Oh, it's wonderful what you can do when you try. Jewels aren't fetching what they did, but pearls are still pearls. Oh, it's no good. I can't get that kind of money. Well, in that case, it's only right that Lord Horbury should know what's been going on. And I believe I'm right in saying that a woman who loses a divorce case on account of her adultery doesn't get any money. And that Raymond Barraclough, who you're having such a merry time with in those pictures in the papers, may have a very pretty face, but he isn't exactly rolling in it, is he? I'll leave you to think it over. <laughs> what is it? Uh, Monsieur Poirot is here to see you, your ladyship. Oh, who is he? What does he want? Uh, he said he was here at the request of Mr. Barraclough, my lady. Then you better show him in, but give me a moment, will you? Madame, I entreat you to look on me as a friend. You are, I know, in great trouble. Oh, I don't know what you're... say, I do not ask you to give away your secrets. I know beforehand. That is the essence of being a good detective. A detective? Of course you were on the plane. Now, let us get down to business. A little while ago, you had a visitor. His name was, um, Brown, perhaps. Robinson. Well, it's the same thing. He came here to blackmail you. He has in his possession certain proofs of an indiscretion, proofs that were once in the possession of Madame Giselle. He offers them to you for perhaps uh, £8,000. Ten. And you will not find it easy to get that amount quickly. Oh, I can't get it at all. I'm already heavily in debt. No, no, no. Calm yourself. Place yourself in my hands. I will deal with this Mr. Robinson. And how much will you require for your services? Oh, I ask only that you tell me the whole truth about this business. And you will get me out of this mess? You will never hear of Mr. Robinson again. All right. I'll tell you everything. I began borrowing from that Giselle woman 18 months ago. I was in a hole. Gambling? And uh, other things. I had an appalling run of luck. Who sent you to her? Raymond, uh, Mr. Barraclough, told me he'd heard she lent money to society women. And she lent you as much as you wanted? Not at first, but then she began to lend me more. And I gather that you and Mr. Barraclough had become friends? Yes. But you were anxious your husband should not know about it? Stephen's tired of me. He'd have jumped at the chance of a divorce. He wants to marry somebody else. But you did not want a divorce. Well, no, you, you see, I... You liked your position as Lady Horbury too much and the use of your husband's ample income. It wasn't enough, but I couldn't ask him for more. And you could not repay Madame Giselle? No, I couldn't. So her death was quite providential. Well, it seemed too wonderful. I simply couldn't believe it. But it made you a little nervous, did it not? You alone of the passengers on that plane had a motive for wanting her dead. Yes, I was in quite a state about it. Especially since you had been to see her in Paris the night before and had something of a scene with her. Well, she wouldn't budge an inch. I think she actually enjoyed it. And yet you said at the inquest you had never seen her before. Well, what else could I say? But I felt pretty safe, even when that dreadful inspector kept badgering me with questions. 
And then that awful letter came, and I was afraid. Afraid of exposure or of being arrested for murder? But I didn't kill her. You know I didn't. I never moved from my seat. Mm-hmm. I believe you, madame, for two reasons. First, because of your sex, and secondly, because of a wasp. A wasp? But that does not make sense to you. No. Well, let us attend to the matter in hand. I will deal with Mr. Robinson, but in return for my services, I will ask you two little questions. Was Mr. Barraclough in Paris the day before the murder? Yes, we dined together, but he thought it better that I should see Madame Giselle alone. And one further question. You were on the stage, I believe, before you were married, and called yourself Cicely Bland. Was that your real name? No. My real name was Martha Jebb. And you were born where? Doncaster. But why do you... Oh, mere curiosity. To tell you the truth, Poirot, I'm not very happy at all about the way this case is going. Mm. The more I look into things, the less I get. If only we could come up with a single clue. I will give you three. And I will give them titles like the names of Mr. Clancy's stories. The clue of the wasp, the clue of the passenger's baggage, the clue of the extra coffee spoon. Your potty, old fruit. What's all this about a coffee spoon? I questioned one of the stewards. He remembered noticing two spoons on a Madame Giselle saucer. That's supposed to mean a wedding. In this case, my friend, it meant a funeral. that Monsieur Hercule Poirot? Speaking. I have a call for you from Paris, Monsieur Fournier. Pray be so good as to put him through at once. Go ahead, caller. Uh, Monsieur Poirot, it is most important that you come to Paris straight away. Can you be at my office by two o'clock tomorrow? The daughter of Madame Giselle has come to claim her inheritance. It was the event for which I had been waiting. The entry on the scene of the shadowy figure of whose presence I had been conscious all along. Now, very soon, all would be made clear. But this time I did not feel inclined to trust my stomach to the hazards of the air. I travelled by the boat train, taking with me, once again as my secretary, Miss Jane Grey. It couldn't have come at a better time, really. I've been given the push. The, the push, mademoiselle? I had a row with Antoine. I lost my temper with a customer. Oh. Oh, she really was an absolute cow. I was feeling nervy, and I just let rip and told her what I thought of her. I ought to be looking around for a new job, I suppose, but I couldn't resist your offer of a few days in Paris. And the good Mr. Gale, he has no objections? Well, why should he? He doesn't own me. He's much too concerned with trying to make up his mind whether to move to Canada or New Zealand. But what's all this about? Do you want me to trail around and do my phony shorthand act? Now, the object of my journey is to meet the daughter of Madame Giselle. Oh. But I wish also to speak further with the Duponts. Now, perhaps while I am taking on the father, I will leave the son to you. Hmm? You remember him from the inquest, I imagine? I've seen him since then. I ran into him at Lyons Corner House. Ah, excellent. Better and better. Mm. But listen carefully. 
I do not want you to tell him about the daughter of Madame Giselle. Hmm? It might be as well if, without actually saying it, you could convey the impression that Lady Horbury is suspected of the crime. You don't think he did it, do you? No, no, he is not exactly top of my list, but uh, I am keeping open all my options until I have encountered this mysterious figure who is about to step into the limelight. She has gone to check into the Hotel Madeleine, but she should be back here at any moment. I've only had the chance to have a few words with her. What age is Mademoiselle Morisot? Ah, but she is not Mademoiselle Morisot. She is Mrs. Richards, married and 24 years old, according to her birth certificate, which she brought with her to establish her identity. She is the daughter of Georges Liman and Madame Morisot, both of Quebec. Quebec? Hmm... That should throw a certain light on the early life of Madame Giselle. As far as I can piece it out, Marie Morisot was a nursery governess when she met this Georges Liman. They married, but after the child was born, they went their separate ways. Marie Morisot to France, and I have no idea what became of Liman. The child was left with the Institut de Marie. Madame Morisot sent money for her daughter from time to time, and then a lump sum which was to be given to her when she reached the age of 21. And how did Anne Morisot come to hear of her mother's death and her inheritance? We inserted discreet advertisements in various journals. One of these came to the notice of the principal of the Institut de Marie, who telegraphed to Mrs. Richards, who was then working in Europe. Mm -hmm. And who is this Richards, the girl's husband? I gather he comes from Detroit. He is a maker of surgical instruments. He did not accompany his wife? No, he is still in America. And is Mrs. Richards able to throw any light on the reason for her mother's murder? She knows nothing whatsoever about her, apart mm. from the few facts given to her by the principal of the Institut de Marie. Ah, but she is here. Uh, please, uh, show Mrs. Richards in. Ah, <clears throat> uh, madame, allow me to present Monsieur Hercule Poirot who is kindly helping the police in their investigation into your mother's death. I am pleased to make your acquaintance, monsieur. Though my feelings in this matter are hardly those of a daughter, to all intents and purposes I have been an orphan all my life. The head of the Institute, Mère Angélique, is the nearest I have had to a mother. And you left the Institute when, madame? When I was 18. I worked for a time as a manicurist and then in a dressmaker shop. Mm -hmm. And when did you meet your husband? A little over a year ago, I was in Nice, and he was about to return to America. He came over again on business to Holland, and we were married in Amsterdam a month ago. He has already gone back home, and now I am about to join him there. And the first you heard of the tragedy was from Mayor Angelique? Oh, no, I, I read about it in the papers, right. but I had no idea the victim was my mother. Then I received a telegram from the Institut de Marie, and I presented myself here. I'm very happy to answer your questions, monsieur, but I do not really see how I can help you. After all, I, I never knew my mother. You are disappointed, mon vieux. You had some idea about that girl. Did you suspect, perhaps, that she might be an imposter? No, no, I never thought that. And the young lady seems genuine enough. It is odd, though. I feel that I have met her before. But no matter. She has no light to shed on the mystery. And it all makes less and less sense. 
I must put through a call to Quebec. Well, did you have any luck? A little. I spoke with Mère Angelique at the Institut de Marie, and she confirmed all that Mrs. Richards told us about her upbringing there. Madame Giselle seemed to think that it was better for the child to grow up away from her influence. But how did Mrs. Richards come to be in Nice? It's rather an unlikely place for a good little convent girl. Apparently, she had a job as a lady's maid, and she came to Europe in that capacity. And what about her father? What happened to him? Ah, that was the main reason for my telephone call. He was an obvious suspect. But he was killed in the early days of the war. Uh, But, um... Ah, there was something I was saying a moment ago, something that... Uh... Please excuse me, I'm still listening. It's just, I've got a jagged nail. I need to find a nail file. Ha! Ah, nom du nom du nom! What's the matter? I remember now why the face of Anne Richard seemed familiar to me. She was in the aeroplane on the day of the murder. Huh? Lady Hobbery sent for her to get a nail file. Anne Richards was Lady Hobbery's maid. Oh, please, mademoiselle, will you telephone Monsieur Fournier and ask him to come here straight away? Mm. This changes everything. But why didn't no one mention this before? Why was she not included among the suspect persons? Because she was not on the passenger list. I have spoken to Lady Horbury, who says that her maid usually travel by rail and boat. It was only at the last moment that she decided that she should accompany her. But where was she during the flight? In the front part of the aeroplane. Yes, I remember now. Lady Horbury sent for her just after the plane had taken off. She didn't appear again. Where did she go for the nail file? Do you remember, mademoiselle? To where the coats and cases were, at the rear of the plane. Past where Madame Giselle was sitting. The poison must have had a delayed effect. But it is not possible. Oh, can all my ideas have been entirely wrong? Oh, mon vieux, such things happen. (laughs) They happen to me. They do not happen to me. But it does not make sense. If it was only arranged for her to travel on the plane at the last minute, how could she have known that her mother would be a passenger? Oh, mon Dieu. What is it? What's the matter? I was not wrong. I am sure of it. And if that is so, then Anne Richards is in imminent danger. I must go to her hotel immediately. Will you have the goodness to remain here, mademoiselle, in case there is any further news? Come, mon ami. There is not a second to lose. What is it, Monsieur Poirot? What has happened? Did you find her? Life is very terrible, mademoiselle. What do you mean? When we reached the hotel, we were told that she had left with an American for the Garuna. An American? She was surprised to see him, it seems. He put her in a taxi, but did not go with her. He said something about the boat train. But did they find her? Oh, yes. When the train reached Boulogne, she was slumped across her seat with a little blue bottle in her hand. It had contained prussic acid. You mean she killed herself? No, that is what the police think. What will you do now? I shall return to England tomorrow. But I would prefer you to remain in Paris, if you will. There are various tasks that you could perform for me, and I would still like you to talk to Jean Dupont. Oh, that's already arranged. We're having dinner together tomorrow night. Oh, excellent. And uh, do not feel you have to hasten your return. Stay in Paris for as long as you wish. Well, old cock, trouble certainly seems to follow you about. 
What happened? Did the girl kill her mother and then poison herself out of remorse? That is the official view. But not yours, eh? There are a few little matters which I would be greatly obliged if you could look into. Always ready to oblige. And I would like you to dine with me in two days' time. Mr. Clancy will be coming, and Mr. Gale also. I think we should have a very interesting evening. This really is an honour, Monsieur Poirot, to have a demonstration of what I might call your methods at first hand. And with a first-rate dinner thrown in? Mm -hmm. Oh, you can always count on Monsieur Poirot for a good meal. It helps to sustain you through what follows. My friends, I will start at the beginning. I will go back to the airline of Prometheus and its ill-fated flight from Le Bourget to Croydon. See what I mean? When, shortly before we were due to land, I suddenly awoke to find the steward asking Dr. Brandt to take a look at Madame Giselle, I had a feeling it might be something in my line. Whenever I come into contact with death, I am like the dog who lifts his head and sniffs the scent. Oh, you've got a good nose for murder, all right. At first, the cause of the poor woman's death seemed a complete mystery. Didn't somebody suggest she might have been killed by a wasp? One of the French chaps said it had flown in his face and he'd swatted it. And it was a perfectly plausible theory. There was a curious mark on the woman's neck. But at that moment I happened to look down and I saw what might have been the body of another wasp. In actuality it was a thorn with a piece of yellow and black silk attached to it. <clears throat> Mr. Clancy, of course, knew exactly what it was. A poison thorn shot from a blowpipe in the manner of a native tribe. By the time we reached Croydon, several ideas were working in my mind. Once I was on terra firma, my little grey cells began to work with all their natural brilliance. Go it, Mr Poirot. Don't let's have any false modesty. I was struck by the audacity of the crime being committed in such a manner, and by the astonishing fact that nobody noticed it being done. There were two other points that interested me. One was the convenient presence of the wasp. The other was the discovery of the blowpipe. Pushed down behind your own seat. Real cheeky, that was. But why had the murderer not got rid of it by passing it through one of the ventilating holes in the windows? Because perhaps he wanted it to be fired. But why? There could only be one logical answer. Because, in fact, the blowpipe had played no part in the crime. But surely the poison dart was the cause of death. I mean, there's no doubt about that, is there? Oh, no, no. The medical evidence confirmed that. So, I shut my eyes and asked myself, what is the surest way of placing a poison thorn in the jugular vein? And the answer came immediately. By hand. So why did the murderer go through all the blowpipe business? Because the blowpipe conveyed the suggestion of distance. If my theory was right, the person who killed Madame Giselle must have gone right up to her and bent over her. That could only have been one of the stewards. There was one other person. Mr. Clancy had passed immediately by Madame Giselle's seat, and it was he who had first drawn attention to the blowpipe theory. This is monstrous. It's outrageous. Uh-uh. Sit down, Mr. Clancy. I have not finished. I am simply showing you the means by which I reached my conclusion. Next, I turned my attention to the wasp. You had that wasp in your bonnet. 
What was curious was that nobody had noticed it until after coffee had been served. It seemed that the murderer might be offering an alternative solution to the blowpipe, that Madame Giselle had been stung by a wasp and had succumbed to heart failure. But the success of that solution depended... ...on whether the killer could retrieve the poison thorn before anyone noticed what had happened. Mm -hmm. It could be done easily enough. Was that why the silk attached to the thorn was yellow instead of cerise, so that it might resemble a wasp? Bravo, Mr. Clancy. It was just that. Our killer approaches the victim's sable, presses the thorn into her neck, and releases the wasp. But how could the murderer have done that? I mean, do you mean he was carrying the wasp in a box or something? Which was why Monsieur Poirot was so interested in the contents of the passengers' pockets and their hand luggage. And here I came up against a totally unexpected development. I found what I was looking for, but it was on the wrong person. There was an empty Bryant and Mays matchbox in Norman Gale's pocket. But by everyone's evidence, Mr. Gale had never passed down the gangway. He had only visited the toilet compartment, which was in the opposite direction from where Madame Giselle was sitting. Well, at least that puts me in the clear. Does it? There was a method by which Mr. Gale could have committed the crime, as the contents of his attaché case showed. <laughs> Don't even remember what was in it. Oh, well, it can wait for a little. I am merely explaining my ideas about the crime. I now had two men who could have committed the crime, Mr. Clancy and Mr. Gale. But could I find a sufficiently convincing motive? And I confess I could not. You always did make life difficult for yourself. Of all the passengers on the plane, the only one who was undoubtedly mixed up with Madame Giselle and who would benefit by her death was Lady Horbury, and I did not see how she could have committed the crime. But what about this daughter of Madame Giselle's? She stood to inherit a pretty tidy sum... Couldn't she have been one of the women on the plane? The point did occur to me, Mr. Clancy. I ruled out Venetia Carr, and subsequently I was able to rule out Lady Horbury, but Jane Grey was another matter. I investigated her antecedents very carefully, and I satisfied myself that she was not the daughter of Madame Giselle. And so you reached a series of dead ends? So it seemed. And yet I was convinced that Mr. Gale was the murderer. There was the empty matchbox and the contents of the attaché case. But what did I stand to gain from Madame Giselle's death? All that happened was that I lost most of my best patients. I tried to gain Mr. Gale's confidence. I pretended to confide in him. I even persuaded him to help me in a fake blackmailing attempt on Lady Hobbury. And it was there that he made his first mistake. I had suggested a modest disguise. He arrived to play his part with a makeup that was utterly ludicrous. No one could play a part as badly as he proposed to play that one, and there could only be one reason for this, that he did not wish to reveal how perfectly he could disguise himself, how well he could play a part. But I don't understand. Why should he want to play a part? Be patient, Monsieur Clancy. All will be explained. 
Because I was worried that Mademoiselle Jane was becoming too closely involved with Gail, I took her to Paris with me as my secretary, after Monsieur Fournier had told me that Anne Morisot was arriving to claim her fortune. The moment she walked into the room, I was convinced that I had seen her before, but I could not place her. And when I did, it was too late. And where had you seen her before? She was on the plane. And she was the maid of Lady Hobury. And when I discovered that, when I realized that she had lied, all my theories were overthrown. Here, overwhelmingly, was the guilty person. But then it became clear to me that she had not planned to be on the plane at all. She was there only as the result of a last-minute change of mind on the part of her mistress. I can't make head nor tail of any I of this. I wouldn't let it worry you, Mr. Clancy. So when did you give up on the idea that I was the murderer? I did not give up. You are the murderer. <laughs> For goodness sake, this is ridiculous. Perhaps you would be so good as to reveal the result of your investigations, Chief Inspector. Your name isn't Gail at all. You only called yourself that when you went into partnership as a dentist with your uncle, John Gale. <laughs> you took his name, but you were his sister's son, not his brother's. Your real name is Richards. It was as Richards that you met Anne Morrisot at Nice last year when she was there with her mistress, Lady Hobury. Very quickly she became infatuated with you. You had her eating out of your hand. The story that she told us was not true. She did know her mother's maiden name, and she knew about her money-lending activity. She knew also that she might be heir to a vast fortune. From Anne you'd learned that Lady Hobury was a client of Giselle, and a plan began to form itself in your mind. Giselle was to be murdered in such a way as to throw suspicion on Lady Hobury. You mean to say Anne Morrison knew all about it? Oh, yes, yes. After all, did she not say that she never knew her mother? She and Gail met again in Nice this summer, and he began to put his plan into action. The clerk at Universal Airlines was bribed so that Giselle and Lady Hobury should travel on the same plane. But surely it was taking an absurd risk if Anne Morisot was going to be there as well. Ah, but as I told you, that was a decision taken only at the last moment by Lady Hobury, and that seriously jeopardized your plans, did it not, Mr. Gale? Your original idea was that Anne Morisot should claim the inheritance with a perfect alibi since she would have been on the cross-channel ferry at the time of the murder. Later you would marry her, and the fortune would be yours. I imagine that for a moment when you saw her on the plane, your determination wavered, but you decided to go ahead nevertheless. You're very clever with your ideas and your imagining, Monsieur Poirot. You ought to be in Mr. Clancy's profession. What you imagined, Monsieur Poirot, is hardly evidence. Perhaps not. But then I do have a little evidence. Oh, really? Well, then perhaps you can tell me how I managed to kill Madame Giselle when everyone who was on the plane knows perfectly well I never went near her. I will tell you exactly how you committed the crime. And my evidence is in the contents of your dispatch case. You were on holiday. Why take with you a dentist's linen coat? That is what I ask myself. And the answer is that it closely resembled a steward's jacket. What's that supposed to mean? This is what it means. 
when coffee had been served and the stewards had gone to the front of the aeroplane, you went to the toilet, took your linen coat from the dispatch case, which you had carefully placed close by, padded your cheeks with cotton wool, came out, took a coffee spoon from the box in the pantry opposite, hurried down the gangway with a quick run of a steward, spoon in hand, to Madame Giselle's table. You thrust the thorn into her neck, opened the matchbox and let the wasp escape, creating a momentary diversion. You hurried back to the toilet, changed your coat, and strolled leisurely back to your seat. The whole thing took only a couple of minutes. And what about Jane Grey? Do you suppose she wouldn't have noticed me capering about, pretending to be a steward? I can tell you the answer to that. As soon as you got up, Miss Grey took out her powder compact and had a good look at herself in her hand mirror, and then she started to powder her nose and adjust her lipstick. Oh, the vanity of women. That doesn't mean a thing. You can't prove a word of this. A photograph of you has been transmitted to Rotterdam. It has been identified as that of a Mr. Richards who married Anne Morisot the week before she came forward to claim her inheritance. So I married her. What does that prove? You were playing a dangerous game. For over a year you had been planning to marry her in order to secure her inheritance from her mother. But in the meantime, you had fallen very seriously in love with Jane Grey and things were moving too fast for you. You heard that I had interviewed Anne Morisot, and you were worried that I might get the truth out of her. You hustled her out of her hotel and onto the boat train. You wanted to get rid of a woman who was already beginning to have second thoughts, and to free yourself to marry Jane Grey. You forced prussic acid down your poor wife's throat and left the empty bottle in her hand. You're making this up, every word. You even left your fingerprints on the bottle. That's impossible. I was wearing... You were wearing gloves. I don't think we need here any more. James Richards, alias Norman Gale, I hold a warrant for your arrest on the charge of willful murder. I must warn you that anything you say will be taken down and used in evidence. Monsieur Poirot, this has been absolutely the most thrilling experience of my life. I cannot thank you enough. No, no, no. The good Jap deserves as much credit as I do. He has done wonders in identifying Gail as Richards, who incidentally worked for six months on a snake farm in South Africa. The Canadian police are after Richards. A girl he was mixed up with there is supposed to have committed suicide, but facts have come to light which seem to point to murder. Terrible. Mm, a killer. And like so many killers, fatally attractive to women. That poor girl, Jane Grey. Yes, but she has courage. She will come through. And I trust she will find happiness with the young Dupont. Can you be sure of that? I have done everything in my power to make it sure. I have made a considerable contribution towards the Dupont's expedition to Persia, and I have arranged for Jane Grey to take part in it. But will she go, do you think? They left this morning. <laughs> Archaeology has a way of bringing people together, and there are many consolations in digging up the past. It is a little like a detective story, but if you happen to dig up a corpse with the remains of a poisoned dart in its neck. <sighs> it is a little too late to send for Hercule Poirot. In Agatha Christie's Death in the Clouds, 
Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat. Chief Inspector Jap, Philip Jackson. Monsieur Fournier, Geoffrey Whitehead. Daniel Clancy, Murray Melvin. Norman Gale, Ben Crow. Jane Grey, Teresa Gallagher. Lady Horbury, Carolyn Jones. Jean Dupont, Andrew Harrison. Dr. Bryant, Bruce Purchase. Elise Gandier, Liza Sadovy. Anne Richards, Priyanga Elan. The airline steward and agency clerk, Stephen Critchlow. Death in the Clouds was dramatised by Michael Bakewell. It was directed by Enid Williams for BBC Radio 4 and is published in the UK by BBC Worldwide. Mystery Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening.